everybody. Welcome to In the Chill of the Night, episode 17. Got a great show for you here tonight. Uh, I'm George Belsky. I'm joined by Ray Gadetti. And our guest tonight is uh, a good friend of mine. We worked together for uh, a number of years uh, in Savannah. Uh, retired ATF Special Agent Lou Velozzi. Uh, LJV, how are you, brother? Doing great, man. It's an honor to be here. Thanks to both of you guys. Uh, it's it's hey, our Lou, pleasure. Lou, thanks for coming on, Lou. Really appreciate it. Heard so much hey. about you. Thank you, brother. Great to so, be here. I'm going to give a, a little bit of an intro, uh, Lou, and then I'm going to hand it off to you. But uh, Lou spent 26 years in federal law enforcement. He started with the old INS in Los Angeles, went over to the Marshal Service for a brief stint, and then found a home, just like I did, in ATF, spent the majority of his career in Savannah, the Savannah field office, uh, developed a reputation and a resume that uh really put him in the forefront of ATF undercover operations. And so tonight we're going to we're going to go a, a stroll down memory lane. Uh, I was fortunate enough or unfortunate enough, as the case may be, depending on where you're sitting, to have been a uh, loose supervisor. Uh, but despite that fact, we're still good friends. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Lou, uh, welcome again. And Let's let's start not quite at the beginning, but uh, I will say that we we share some some common background. Uh, your dad, God rest his soul, was a uh, a sheet metal worker, as was my dad. You're mm -hmm. from uh, just north of the city. I'm from just south in uh, in New Jersey. A couple of blue collar kids that uh, that found their way into federal law enforcement. So pick it up from. Uh, Where'd you go to school and, and how did you wind up uh, in law enforcement? So I was I was one of those uh, direct directionless people, uh, young, young guys in college. Um, you know, I, I went to Lafayette College in Pennsylvania. Go and, parts. Uh, go parts. Yeah. <laughs> on a football scholarship. And, and to say that I didn't take my uh, my student career seriously would be an understatement. Um, barely made it out with a. 2.2 uh, grade point average and uh, with wow. a degree in, yeah, degree in economics and business. And I didn't know much about either subject when I got out. So, you know, I just, I took a, a job at a bank uh, making eight or nine bucks an hour, uh, miserable working in a room with no windows, reading computer printouts and sorting them in different boxes. And uh, one day I got a call from a guy who I had played ball with. And he was in the Bronx and he said, uh, hey, man, I'm at my brother's place. Why don't, you, why don't you come over after work and hang out? So I drove down there and uh, his brother pulls up. I had never met his brother before. And there's this, he's driving a Corvette and he gets out and he's a long haired uh, guy, Italian guy, you know, kind of got the, the Miami Vice uh, get up on because that was, that was the, you know, this was 35 years ago. And, uh, he was he worked for the DEA and he was an undercover guy and we talked for about over a beer for about a half hour forty five minutes and man I was hooked I finally had direction in my life I knew what wow. I wanted to do yep that and that is I, uh, I know yeah. I know the story 
right? Boom. Yeah. It wasn't work yeah, anymore. I'm, yeah. That's right. You know, I, I, I knew that I at least had a goal now. I had a purpose. And, uh, man, I just started taking the tests. You, you guys remember there was the, the TEA, you know, the treasury test and all, all the different tests. And uh, the one good thing was I was still in test taking mode because I was so fresh out of college. And uh, I just I scored really high and ended up getting a phone call from INS in Los Angeles for a special agent uh, position for an interview. I didn't even own a suit. So, you know, my dad took me down to the garment district and we bought a, a suit. I tucked my mullet in my in my collar and flew out to L.A. and uh, went through the interview. And I again, because I didn't know what I was doing or, or I, I wasn't nervous because I was clueless. And I, I did very well in the interview. And the next week, I got a call and a job offer. And I found myself down at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center a few months later uh, as an INS special agent. And uh, go through go through Fletzy, as it's called, uh, down here. Um, <clears throat> did, uh, did you do language? Because you got picked up INS. Did, I, did you do a language course down here or, or once you got into your first assignment? No, I, ha I had to do the uh, Spanish immersion course uh, at Fletcher, you know, and when I got there, uh, Georgia, I, I had never even held a gun in my life, right? Never <laughs> held a gun. Uh, I, I mean, you talk about green. I, I just, I knew nothing. And uh, immigration law is, is convoluted and it's complicated. Uh, but, you know, I, I found it fascinating. I, I actually enjoyed it. I, I would say behind like tax law, maybe the IRS agents, you know, immigration law is the most complicated law we have in this country. but you know, I loved it. I love learning about it. And um, I, I got out in the streets of L.A. You know, we got to L.A. And, and the first thing they do is they put you in the after the Spanish immersion, you, you get out there and they put you at the L.A. County Jail Central and you're working the release line, interviewing um, every foreign born inmate on the release line to determine alienage and deportation, uh, deportability. So, you know, you're I was interviewing MS-13 guys, and this was 91. You know, nobody knew what MS-13 was yet, uh, and, and all these gangbangers, and most of the interviews were in Spanish, and uh, I, I was just introduced to a world I knew nothing about. Uh, you know, the West Coast, these gangs, I mean, they were way ahead of anyone anywhere else in, in the world. Uh, these guys were coming into L.A., and you know, they were showing a level of violence that even the Bloods and the Crips, you know, these guys weren't accustomed to uh, what these guys were doing. And I, I was thrown right into that. And, and I loved it. Um, you know, I was on the streets. I, I worked the riots. Uh, you know, we were doing human trafficking, you know, the anti-smuggling unit, uh, gang unit, uh, just street work. And, and I, I fell in love with it. Um, you know, deep down, I, you know, I knew I wanted to work undercover. Um, obviously you got to pay your dues before that happens. And a big Italian guy, um, doesn't have a whole lot of opportunities for undercover work with, with immigration. <laughs> so, uh, but I learned wow. how to be a cop. Uh, I was lucky enough to get on a task force, the Rampart task force, uh, with LAPD, ATF and INS. And that's where I really, I learned how to be a cop. We were doing shift work. We answered to the LAPD sergeant. And we were just hitting the streets, just corner jump outs, um, just total, you know, saturation. The Rampart District, if you're not familiar with it in Los Angeles, was, I mean, it was hot, man. It was just crime ridden. It was a great place to be a cop. L.A. in the early 90s 
was one of the best places in the world to be a cop at that time. And, but I, I saw then, uh, when I started working with the ATF guys, um, you know, that's where I wanted to go. They were always in the mix. Uh, they were the ones who the, you know, the real cops had respect for. Um, and, you know, they were the ones doing all the undercover work. They were the cowboys. And so I knew, you know, I had to work my way over to that agency eventually. Yeah. And, and how long were you with INS? I was with INS for five years uh, out there in LA. And then I did a, I got on the, uh, to get back to the East coast, I transferred to the marshals and I was on the fugitive, um, fugitive squad with the marshals in New York and Puerto Rico. And uh, while I was in Puerto Rico, ATF finally uh, came open with a class and I got hired and that was, I came on with ATF and started working in uh, the beginning of uh, 1998. Okay. Wow. And yeah. um, <clears throat> so back to Fletzy for your third time, because okay. you went INS, Marshalls, and then with <laughs> ATF. So I had done well over a year of my life as a basic student at Fletzy. <laughs> it's almost it, like a <laughs> sentence. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> did, I, but I did, kept getting better at it as I went along. Um, nice, I was good. Getting, now, now, did it get any easier? You know, it, it was hard because when I I was uh, I was already like a twelve step, I don't know, ten or something when I switched over to ATF. But you know, I didn't have to do the CI portion again, obviously, and and everyone else in my class with ATF, it was only an opening for. Uh, 1811s for people who are already agents in other agencies. So it was Secret Service guys and marshals <clears throat> and everyone else. So at, at least, you know, the, my classmates were, were peers, you know. So even though we were still technically basic students, uh, it, it wasn't as bad. It's sometimes it's just hard to be at Fletzy because it's a terrible place. <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah. I work there. Stop I know. it. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and, in your, and in your basic class, was a postal inspector friend of mine. Uh, now, now we're uh, mutual friends. Um, and I remember getting a phone call from him that said, "Hey, uh, I'm leaving uh, the postal inspectors, and um, I got hired by ATF." And I, number one, was very glad that he did it, uh, but I was also mad at him that he didn't tell me he was putting in because I would have jumped on that same ship. Uh, because I had been a, a, a street cop before going to the postal inspectors. And although that's a fantastic organization uh, that does some incredible work, I, I, I kind of wanted to go back to that street, street level law enforcement um, that ATF did. So uh, about a year later, I, I made the same switch that Lou did. Um, but so let's get back to Lou's story. So you finish up Fletzy. And you head up to the Savannah field office. Mm -hmm. And how uh, how was that? Well, I'll tell you what, just to rewind, you know, when I, I got hired, um, there was I, I think I had maybe maybe two months before the academy date. And uh, when I, I my first day in Savannah, my I had this partner who's a mentally disturbed <laughs> guy. Um, <laughs> His initials are Randy Beach, Randy Joe Beach. And uh, he, he, I was working undercover, literally, I'm not exaggerating. He was an undercover. I was working undercover my second day on the job. No was, way. Yep. Are you kidding? I was buying a gun in a, in a, uh, in the restroom of a, 
Crystal Burger, a fast food restaurant. Um, now, were you voluntold to do this or uh, raise your hand a second? No, man. I, you know, I told Randy the second I met him, um, I wanted to work undercover, man. That's what I was wow. asking for. And he threw me right in. And, uh, you know, he had some great informants already. And, you know, I must have, I probably did, I don't know, 10 or 12 undercover deals uh, before I went to the academy. And then, you know, Randy wow. had to go to court for me because I had court while I was in the academy. Uh, but that's so I got, you know, I just lucked out that I got partnered up with an un undercover guy uh, and he was he was wanting a, a partner. So it just it couldn't have worked out better. Um, so. When I got out of the academy, I just jumped in and, uh, you know, I started small the way you're supposed to start. Um, you know, an informant would introduce me uh, to a, some gang member who was a convicted felon and, and was selling a gun or selling a small amount of dope. And I just started out with nickel and dime dope and gun buys. And I did hundreds wow. and hundreds of them. And, uh, you know, I knew, you know, I, I was I found a home and that's where I wanted to be. But I also knew that I wanted to be on that national level. I wanted to be on that national stage with the guys who. I ended up becoming very good friends with and working with. But at the time, you know, those were the guys that I wanted to be, you know, Chris Bayless, Jay Dobbins, th those guys were out there doing it. And I wanted to work my way up, you know, to, to doing, you know, long-term deep infiltrations and, you know, big cases as an undercover. Lou, let's, let's take a second um, uh, for the folks that aren't familiar with, uh, undercover as as an as an enforcement or an investigative technique and and I you alluded to it in in that last segment there but there's there's like two kinds of undercover there's that street level undercover where you're just buying uh you know quick hits you're going out and buying a couple guns you're buying a little bit of dope you're buying maybe some high explosives um and then you take it up to that next level and you do those extended uh, long terms. Uh, so what was, uh, what was your initial exposure to that? How did you, uh, cause I know Randy, uh, not as well as you, uh, but, uh, I know him and, and I know he was, he was always at that level of, he was always doing the aggressive stuff, but he didn't do, he didn't do long-term stuff. He was just an undercover working in the field. Right. Yeah. You know, Randy was a cop. Yeah, you know, he was a cop's cop. He was a cop, man. Yeah. So I, uh, you know, I, I had kind of two initials. Uh, I, I started getting a good reputation, you know, mostly, you know, through Randy. Uh, and I was just doing everything I could. And initially, uh, I want to say it was probably 1999. Um, I got a call from Atlanta. Uh, to see if I wanted to do an undercover biker case, right? The Outlaws Motorcycle uh, Gang. And the reason I got that call, it was not because I was equipped in any way to go undercover as an outlaw biker. I knew nothing about that culture, about outlaw bikers. I was the only other person in the Atlanta Field Division who had a motorcycle license on his <laughs> undercover license. Because you know when you get when you train you know when you get an undercover license whatever whatever classifications you have on your real license transfer over and right when when I was like 18 years old in New York I had a, a Yamaha Virago so I had gotten my 
my motorcycle <laughs> license, so I still had it. And, uh, and when I say I knew nothing, when I was on my way up to Atlanta uh, for the first meet, I was calling a buddy of mine in New York and saying, Hey, is it like one down and four up on a Harley? And, you know, so what had happened was uh, my partner, Brian Neal, he, he was already, man, they had already made a great case and they were undercover with the outlaws in Atlanta. And uh, he was working with a task force officer from up that way. And as soon as they got invited to go, the outlaws invited them to go with them uh, to the uh, Daytona uh, to bike week. Uh, this guy's the task force guys. He was with the local sheriff's department. They were like, hey, man, listen, we didn't really sign up for all this. And they pulled him out. Uh, and, and Brian, uh, he needed a partner, man. So because of my motorcycle license, I got the call. And uh, I'll tell you what I did, though. I, and the first thing I did when I got up there, and there was there was two, like, powerhouse informants uh in with us uh so i got there it was north georgia mountains it was it was kind of raining misting it was nighttime uh they gave me this huge dresser right this huge like thousand pound you know dresser partly with all the fairings and all that and uh you know i hadn't ridden a motorcycle since my virago <laughs> you know, five years ago whatever. And and they take off like bats out of hell in the North Georgia mountains, winding and curving. And what I dumped it, you know, I, I tried to keep wow. up with them and I dumped it. Man. And I mean, I tore myself up the bike and they had just redone it. It was a bike that had been seized and they had redone oh. it. So, and these, these informants show up. I'm in a ditch and, and, uh, and the throttle was stuck and the wheel's still going and I'm, I'm all messed up in a ditch. And the informants look at Brian, they're like, we're going to take this guy into the outlet. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, at least you know we got the bike up and it was all bent and mangled but we we're able to kind of turn some things to get it going and I, I i said listen they were like brian was like i'm gonna call you know we're gonna i'm gonna call an ambulance i said no listen i'm good and i got back on that bike which was all messed up and, and i rode with them uh, and at least they respected that they didn't respect wow. my capabilities but they respected that so wow. So what I did when, during that case, you know, when they first brought me into a clubhouse and, you know, I, I had never been in a, a outlaw biker clubhouse. And, uh, you know, I can tell you, you know, it, it's it's intimidating, you know, when you walk in, um, you know, and I was young, man. God, I, I was what, I don't know, 23, 24 years old um, and, and just not knowing anything about it. But here's what I did when when they brought me in, um, you know, and there's these these apes, right, these guys, these these guys are animals, man. They were all just big dudes and dirty and smelly. And, mm. and uh, I went right up to the president. Um, the president, his name was Pierre at the time. None of them use real names. And uh, I said, listen, man, I said, uh, I introduced myself and I said, I don't, uh, I don't know your culture. You know, I don't know your rules. And I, I certainly don't want to offend any of you guys by doing or saying something I shouldn't. I said, I just want to learn, man. I want to, I want to, I want to be one of you guys and I want you to teach me. You know, that was my approach. And let me wow. tell you, you know, I, I just played it right to his ego. And, you know, so he saw this big, young, you know, dumb guy and someone he could mold, right. You know, someone who could be useful to him. And he kind of, he took me in and uh, you know, that's, that's how I played that case as, cause if I had gone in there and tried to act like an outlaw biker, they would have seen right through that. Right. Um, so, you know, that's when I learned, I learned a lot. Uh, during that case, 
you know, about being an undercover and just don't go in there. Don't try to change yourself and don't go in there trying to be someone you're not. You know, if you don't know about, you know, their hustle, ask them, right? Just be, be normal. And, uh, yeah, that's how, kind of how I played my whole undercover career like that. So <clears throat> you're, you're moving up the ranks of, of the undercover uh, groups and, and a- ATF has a uh, enhanced undercover program. They'll, they'll send, send agents out to advanced schooling with uh, very, very qualified undercovers that, uh, that teach them about uh, different techniques and, and all those sorts of things. Um, and, and you're on your way into that, into that ballpark. Um, it's kind of like going from uh, minor league ball into the, into the big leagues. Um, what, what brought you, uh, well, well, let's go. I know you did a, a, a job in Arizona with Jay um, in, in his big case. Uh, what, what did you learn from that? That was my real introduction uh, on that, that national scene I was talking about. Uh, shortly after the outlaw case, that's, I got the call. Um, I got a call from Jay Dobbins, uh, author of No Angel, great book, mm-hmm. and, um, and Chris Bayless, who became just kind of my mentor in life and undercover. And uh, Jay had had made this incredible case out there uh, on the border in Arizona uh, with this crew. It was just one of these crews, man, that were into everything. Guns, they, they, drugs. They were outlaws also? No, no. This was a home invasion crew, man. Oh, these were, these really? were just gangsters. Big home invasion crew. And uh, so what he wanted to do was for the – he had already done the hard work, but for the finale of the case – he wanted to fly out three guys who, you know, he, he told these guys, listen, I'm bringing my own crew for this home invasion. You know, it's, it's a, it was going to be a big deal. So he wanted to fly us out. Three guys, uh, John Babyface Carr out of L.A., Chris Bayless out of Chicago, and he had called me. And uh, the bad guys actually, he wanted to fly us out for the last two weeks of the case to wrap it up and do this home invasion scenario. So he actually had the bad guys pick us up at the airport. So when I flew into Tucson, the bad guys actually, so we were in roll like as we stepped off the airplane and uh, they picked me up and we did, we did a couple weeks out there with these guys doing, we bought RPGs from these guys. I mean, like I said, there was nothing they were not into. Uh, we bought, we were buying kilos, uh, all sorts of guns, RPGs, and uh, all the while setting up this huge uh, home invasion that, that we were going to do. And I mean, you know, here I am working with these with these guys that I had always heard about. Um, you know, I had met John Carr back in L.A., Babyface. How cool and, is that? Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, these guys were guys who, you know, I eventually I wanted to, you know, become just like them. Now I was I was working with them hand in hand, and uh, and so you know, it was really cool. Uh, we set up the home invasion with them. Um, I almost messed everything up at the end. Um, <laughs> How's so, that? So Jay decided he, he, wanted, to, <laughs> he wanted to throw the phone to the, uh, to the SRT guys, to our SWAT guys. Cause you know, those guys spend hours and hours, you know, like up in a tree somewhere or something, you know, always, you know, to cover us. So he, he arranged it so that the, the last meet uh, before the home invasion was going to be when we're going to sure everything up was going to be at a strip joint. 
So the SRT guys were able to dress down and, and go into the strip joint as customer, uh, which was a nice treat for them. And uh, so kind of to be a funny guy, and this was back, we were still using the Nagra back then. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. Was, yes. Yeah. Real to real. Yeah. yeah. So, so Jay instructed me to put the, the recorder and transmitter uh, in the only place to put it. And we were in Arizona, right? I was wearing a, you know, like a, a cutoff t-shirt and jeans was to put it, you know, in my crotch. So this big Nagra and, and the, the transmitter and all that, uh, you know, so again, not exactly comfortable. Right. And then <laughs> we, we get in there and we're with the bad guys and uh, Jay decides to send a stripper over to me to give me a lap dance. Right. Again, to, you know, making me a little more uncomfortable. Right. You know, cause I got all this. Just equipment a little. And now, right. <laughs> so, I thought it would be funny, like a funny kind of retort, you know, about halfway through the song, I told the stripper, I said, listen, I don't know what he gave you. I said, but here's 20 bucks. I said, go finish the song with him. I said, but he's kind of kinky. I said, you know, halfway through your dance, I said, give him a little pop, give him a little slap in the face. He likes that kind of thing. Right. So she bounces over there with my 20 and, and starts dancing for him. And I swear to God, she, First of all, I didn't notice she was wearing all these rings on her hand. I didn't know where. She comes up with a closed fist, like a Mike Tyson left hook, right to Bird's cheeks, right, right here to the side of the face. And you know, if you know Jay, Jay's got high cheekbones. He never could have been a yeah. boxer. And uh, man, she busted him wide open. I mean, wide open. Wow. And uh, you know, he was ended up in the bathroom getting sutured by the medic from the SWAT team. <laughs> uh, in the back of the strip joint. Does he and know I, that you put her up to it? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> so you know, I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, oh, I'm done, right? I'm, I will never get an invite again, right? I just fucked up my whole career. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, he, he I, I mean, he ended up, and I have pictures. I, I, I don't, I think, I don't think I put in a book, but he, he ended up with a huge shiner and a big busted cheek. Wow. He had to explain that to his wife. That he had gotten out of the strip joint. And uh so he was pissed and but he got over it. Uh it actually kind of played into the whole thing. And uh, you know, we did the takedown. The takedown was one of the coolest things I've ever been a part of. Um, like helicopter came up behind the sand dune, and these guys all ran and they were getting beanbagged by the SRT guys. Uh, just a really cool case. Uh Jay did cool out and and uh thanks to Chris Bayless and and uh, I, you know, I, I did get further invites after that. Um, and we, we got, we got through that, but uh, that was really on the national stage, my first gig, but I did good in the, the important part, the undercover part, you know, I did good. And uh, from that point on, you know, I just ended up working, bouncing all over the country, um, you know, working with just the greatest men and women, in, in my opinion, in undercover in the world. And, uh, you know, that kind of set it off at that point. And there was no looking back. Go ahead, Ray. So, Lou, I mean, uh, and, and George, I apologize. If you got a question, throw it in there. But I think this is a, a great time to, to bring up your book that you recently published, right? There's the, there you go, <laughs> Storefront Sting, an ATF agent's life undercover. And, George, you got a signed copy too, right? I did. <laughs> So can you give us uh, a little bit about the book and uh, what's in it? 
uh, what can people expect? Um, sounds like it's going to be stories like this. And it's not just one case. There's a whole bunch of things in there, right? Yeah. So, Ray, the book is is about uh, four of these storefront, undercover storefront operations that I conducted in Georgia, in wow. different cities in Georgia. Um, that's what the book is about. Uh, you know, I, I kind of start the story uh, the same way I did with you guys, just to explain briefly how I, I got into it. But that's what the book, 90% of the book is about. Uh, these operations that, I, again, I kind of fell into the first one. But, you know, after doing a couple of the biker operations and some murder for hires and some and some gang infiltrations, um, you know, I kind of started to see how you can, I mean, there were guys you would put in two, three years on a case and maybe you'd lock up, you know, you get 15 to 20, you know, patch members of a club or, or right. you know, of a gang or whatever, you know, and, you know, if you're lucky, you'd, you'd get some dope and you'd, you'd get maybe 30 guns. Um, so I get to call uh, to do this storefront operation which was a tattoo shop. And, you know, we can go into these if you want to, but I, I'll just tell you, I did the first one. And in a 12 month period, we bought 430 crime guns off the streets. No of way. Augusta, Georgia from gangbangers. Oh, wow. Um, and, you know, I, I said, man, you talk about bang for the buck. You know, I just did a 12 month operation and got 430 crime guns. You know, ATF had never seen results like these. Wow. Um, they, they were unheard of. Uh, so, you know, I, we, we ended up doing uh, three more after that. And with each one, it got better. We evolved. It was, a, it was an evolution. Um, they got more complicated. We, we went from, you know, street gang members uh, at the beginning, which we never really got away from, but we, at the end, we were into organized crime. We were into uh, Bolivian uh, gun traffickers. Uh, we really got into organizations. We, we just stepped our game up with each one. And the book centers around the evolution of these storefront operations and just the incredible success that we had with these and a lot of the failures uh, that we had, you know, a lot of the, uh, you know, we made mistakes. Um, can 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 you talk about any of those? Absolutely. I mean, I, yeah, I, I talk about yeah. it in the book. Um, Be, before yeah. you do that, yeah. I, I just want to interject that uh, the whole time Lou was was in the enhanced undercover program and getting these calls to go out and do stuff, <clears throat> he was still pulling a, a caseload in Savannah. Uh, he was still making firearms trafficking cases, so he had trips up and down the the I ninety five corridor with uh georgia as a source state uh, going up to uh new york and new jersey which were market states so it's not like the only thing he did was undercover he was uh in addition to being a great undercover he was a great case agent he he did he did the 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 journeyman level case stuff it's not like he was uh, removed and just doing prima donna stuff. Now he won't tell anybody that, but um, I came to the Savannah office as a supervisor after their first two uh, storefronts, uh, uh, Augusta Inc. and then Statesboro Blues. 
And uh, so I got to see firsthand, uh, you know, the the creativity, the ingenuity, the hard work uh, that he did. And, and I'll tell you, uh, probably one of uh, the major mistakes that I made as a boss was I allowed him to be both the case agent and the lead undercover, which uh, you shouldn't do. And when I when when he and I taught this for ATF, and he's taught it since then, but one of the things we always say is, "Hey, y- you got to divvy up the work because it was too big of a load for him." Uh, although he would never admit it, uh, I-, I-, I think I think we can I think we can say that that's true. So. Before he get he gets into into this, I just want you to know he he was not a prima donna. He was a wow. he was a working case agent, um, and and was humping a, a pretty good sized ruck, uh, doing cases both using regular investigative techniques as well as as well as undercover. Wow. Well, I I'll tell you what. Here's here, like Ray. Here's an insight into the undercover world. And, and I saw this early on and, and I don't, I'm not putting anyone down or judging anyone. It's just what I, I saw and I observed. There was a lot of guys who were, they were, they were the undercover guys, right? That's what they did. And, you know, they put their feet up on the desk and they said, Hey man, call me when it's time to do the undercover work. And they would, they would go in, they would do a great job. They do right. the undercover, and when it was done, they rode away. They rode away on their Harley or their horse into the sunset, right? And that was, you know, I looked at some of the guys. Now I looked at Jay Dobbins, I looked at Chris Bayless, and I was like, wow, these guys, they're running their cases, right? They're running their cases, and wow. they're doing the undercover work, like they. And and you know, I always prided myself that I was not a one-trick pony, man. I, I did everything. Um, yep. and, and plus maybe part of that is being a little bit of a control freak as well. Because, <laughs> just you know, a little, yeah, just I, a little bit. I knew what worked and I wanted to do it my way, um, because I knew what got results and what worked. So, you know, I had to have my hands on everything and, and George is absolutely right. It's not the way to do it. Um, it's just not, you know, you have to have a case agent and you have to separate yourself, uh, as, as the undercover and, and just, you know, there's plenty to do you know just as the undercover in a long-term infiltration but uh i i guess i was somewhat of a control freak and i, I wanted to control it do everything because you know i felt i knew best uh what move to make next and all that so probably yeah one of that is one of the big mistakes uh looking back on my career for sure god bless you yeah yeah wow. i mean you know if you and and I I'll tell you I talk about in the book uh, in and I'm being very specific to the storefront operations. Um, you know we we hired people to give ourselves a little more credibility, especially at the beginning when it, if it was a slow start. Uh, we hired people from the community to work at the at these stores. Uh, the one we did in Statesboro was a huge mistake, man. I. I we got a guy who was a multi-convicted felon. I had bought a large amount of crack cocaine from him. And this is when those cracks, federal crack statutes were, were still just brutal. Yeah. And uh, 
his, he, he was a nice guy. I mean, he was a good, pleasant guy to deal with. And his girlfriend came up to us afterward and she said, Hey, you know, his PD was what everyone called him. PD needs a, as a condition of his parole, he has to be employed. You know, could you guys hire him here at the store? You guys seem to like him. You know, it's all good. <laughs> he, he knows what's going on here. So we were like, wow, what an opportunity, right? <laughs> instant, yeah. instant street cred with, with the people from this city, right? They all knew him and they knew what he was about. Wow. So we did, we hired him. Um, hmm kind of on a conditional basis. And uh, he ended up working that store every day for eight months with us, which presented, you know, some issues, right? This is a long-term undercover operation. And right, he's at the counter, you know, he's working to register and right behind the wall right here is, there's a room next door with uh, a cover team, guys running <laughs> criminal histories and running license plates and with long guns ready to come in in the event of a robbery. And uh, so it added even more work to us to keep, you know, we could never come out of role, obviously. He was there all the time, um, but it paid off, man. He became part of the operation, a trusted right. part of the operation. Right. And, uh, you know, as we kind of, I mean, he ended up like brokering deals for us and helping negotiate on prices. And he, he jumped, he thwarted two robberies when guys, the same guys we were dealing with during the day, who had already been in and sold us guns and sold us drugs. And we had done, you know, uh, five or six deals with, those were the same guys who were coming back at night to rob us with ski masks on. And, uh, Incredible. Yeah. On two occasions, he jumped in the middle. He jumped in between, he knew who they were. And he was like, man, you don't want to, you know, we're all going for our guns thinking, oh, well, this operation's over. You know, we're about to have a shootout. And, uh, he put himself in the middle and talked them down, got them out. And, uh, so by, by the time the operation was about to shut down, you know, me and the other guys, the undercover guys, we, we had become attached to this guy. He would have jumped in front of a bullet for us. And uh, we were like, wow, P, you know, Pete's going to prison, man, for a long time. And we, we just felt terrible about it. And, you know, they decided to arrest him before he was a massive takedown. We decided to arrest him first and put him in the lockup and, uh, you know, he tried to kill himself. He tried to commit suicide. Oof. He strung up uh, his bed sheets unsuccessfully, luckily. And then, you know, we didn't think all these guys, now you got all these defendants coming in and they're just finding out who we are and that this was an undercover operation, right? These might be guys we hadn't dealt with in six months. We bought guns from, but we had shut them off. And, you know, now they're getting arrested and brought in. They're finding out we're undercover. Now they see Petey. They see the guy who's been behind the counter with us. So, we hadn't thought about it, but what are they going to think? He's not going to be popular in the lockup, right? He's a snitch. <clears throat> and so, uh, you know, and then he had to be separated. And, uh, you know, it was just terrible, man. We we all felt terrible. I, I even went to court to try and get him a downward departure and got up on the stand. And the uh, federal judge didn't want to hear it. He looked at me and said, listen, man, he, wow. wasn't, he was this defendant wasn't helping you because you're a law enforcement officer. He was helping you because he thought you were a gangster just like he is. 20 wow. years. Yeah. Man. And then what do we do? We went and uh, we hired locals for the next one. You know, yep. just like I said, mistakes were made, you know, without a doubt. Um, but, you know, I would also say, show me any long-term, not even undercover, any law enforcement operation that goes on, you know, for a year that you couldn't Monday morning quarterback and pick apart and say, why'd you oh, do this? Why'd you do that? Of right? course. Gray yeah. area, any law enforcement yeah. operation, there's gray areas everywhere. Well, there's no cookie cutter solution. I mean, <laughs> right. you're dealing with, with people and humans that, that doesn't work that way. That's right. 
Now, what was so, uh, what was what was life like for you? I mean, you're, I mean, wh- where are you sleeping at night? Uh, yeah. What does that look like? Wh- what's the downtime? There is none, right? You know, I, I was Ray. I, I was nonstop, and George George can tell you, I, I couldn't stop. I mean, I was so I was addicted. It was it was my it was my drug. Um, after the, uh, I, I can't even remember which operation it was. Uh, I, I believe it was the second uh, storefront. As we were coming close to shutting it down, I was out to dinner with my wife, and uh, we, you know, we had just had little babies, just kids, and I was telling her, "Listen, I'm going to take some time off. Um, you know, spend some time. I'm going to shut this down." During that conversation, my phone rings. And it's Chris Bayless, the Chicago guy I told you about. And he said, listen, man, I, he goes, I want to try something. I need you to come up here. Um, it's probably never going to work. Uh, we got this guy we're trying to get in on. You know, the F, it's a joint case with ATF and FBI. FBI has sent three, three got informants at this guy, and he sniffed them all out. And two of them were childhood friends. They were dirty cops. Um, he goes, I, I want to try sending you in cold. I have an idea. And literally, as I'm telling my wife, I'm about to take some time off in between because I've already got the other storefront like lined up, but I couldn't say no to him. Never. There was no way. So, you know, I told my wife, listen, I'm going to go up there. He said, it's never going to work. It'll be a couple of days. That'll be it. And I went up there and his idea, this uh, this guy was he was in the mafia. They call it the outfit in Chicago. He was also a patched member of the outlaws. Uh, Chicago, and you know this was, you know that was this was right when they were at wow. war with the <laughs> angels up there and all that, and uh, it was a big deal because it was the first like really recorded case of the mafia and the outlaws. Yeah, I was going to say you don't hear about yeah, that, right? Together, right. You know the mafia was using these guys to do a lot of their dirty work, and uh, this guy had a jewelry store up there in Cicero, which was that's where Al Capone's headquarters were. And uh, it was a total front. I mean, there, it was a front in the back of that place. There was about three or four layers to get in. And then in the back, he was doing deals with every with the mafia, outlaw bikers, the Latin kings. I mean, street Chicago street gangs, you name it, uh, gangster disciples. And so he sent me to this guy because he did have a sign that said, we buy gold. I mean, it was a total front. It was kind of his own storefront. And uh, he sent me in there with a bag, a crown royal bag full of bloody crowns, crowns with teeth stolen in them that he had gotten from his dentist. Uh, and I was to go in there cold, see if this guy would buy them from me. And that's how it started. And it took me months. Um, he took a liking to me. My, my cover for that was I was a kind of a down and out MMA fighter who was up there as, as a punching bag, basically, uh, you know, for some gym, for a local gym up there. And uh, it took me a long time. That was the hardest case I've ever done. The hardest because this guy was so smart. He wasn't even a felon. They could not get this guy on anything. Um, you know, they were working a bombing he had done. Uh, you know, they were putting the video gambling machines in people's businesses. And, you know, you really didn't have a choice when they told you. And uh, they had ended up uh, blowing. One guy said he didn't want him. And, and they blew his place up, sent him a message. So. Uh, it took me months and months, but I was able to work my way into this guy. Um, and I did that as one storefront was shutting down. And then I found myself in Chicago 
still working cases back in Savannah and then starting up the next storefront. And that Chicago case went for the period of a year. So th that's what my life was like, Ray. I mean, I was in yeah, hotels. So, so much, so much for telling your wife, you'll be right back. <laughs> right. Right. And, and then, uh, cause that, that, that Chicago case, if I remember right, Lou was in between Augusta and Statesboro. And, okay. uh, yeah. because, uh, the night that um, I go up to uh, Statesboro before we did the big takedown on that case, the the word had already gotten out that that I was going up to Savannah to be the boss, and uh, Lou and I and a uh, Glenn County uh, detective are sitting around having dinner, and we haven't even arrested the guys in the current storefront or prosecuted them. And Lou is telling me, hey, I got a, I got an idea for the next one. And uh, we knew where we were going to put it. And I said, oh, well, oh, don't boy. don't we need to put this other case to bed first? Because I'm a brand new supervisor. He goes, nah, we can do it. I can do it. And, you know, um, eager to be a boss that always said yes and never said no. Man, we start going. We start going off to the races. And then that job ended. And we set up another one. Yeah. and. That was that was the pace, um, and there was there were two weeks that that stand out in my mind that these guys were living in an undercover house together. Uh, we were rotating probably three, four, five guys uh, agents out out of the undercover uh, house that we were living in, and these guys were just at each other's throats. And I said, "That's it. Two weeks. Uh, shut this thing down. Everybody goes home." Uh, spend time with your family, catch up on some paperwork, whatever it is, but don't answer the phone. Just we'll come up with something. And um, they and did it. They argued about it. You did that to me. Yeah. What? Yeah. They're, they were arguing the whole time. And, and, <laughs> and I can see that uh, these guys who were friends are now fighting with each other. And it's like, guys, th this isn't worth it. And I send them home and they hated it. Um, but I tell you, uh, in, in hindsight, being 2020, I should have done it more. I should have made these guys go home. Um, uh, you know, they're, they're uh, Lou, uh, and correct me if, I, if I'm wrong, but these guys are addicted to the chase. They're addicted to the work. They love doing it. They, they I don't want to say they needed it, but it was the challenge. It was the way to go. And, and as a boss, as a, as a supervisor of these guys, I'm addicted to letting them run. Uh, and, and so we did, we, we were literally going a hundred miles an hour, probably for the three years that I was in that office. Lou, is that, is that correct? Or, or, you know, without a doubt, you know, and Ray, I'll tell you what, <laughs> I, I'll just describe, this was the atmosphere back then. Like with, with all the guys, uh, you know, who were working undercover back then around the country, um, you would hear, like, I, I would hear, oh, man, Jay Dobbins just just made this case, right? And he got 40 defendants and this many guns and this many kilos of dope. And and, and so I would, I, I would have kind of two feelings from that, right? First feeling was pride, right? This was one of my guys, guys on my team. And, and man, that's awesome and I'm proud. And then the, the other feeling that went along with that was, Oh, I could do better than that. <laughs> I can now do that. And, and, and we had that, right? We, all of us, man, we had that. Yep. 
I, I can't call it a healthy competition because there wasn't nothing healthy about it, but it was a competition. Um, you know, unspoken. Hear, yeah, you know, I, and and all of us deep down thought, oh man, I can do better than that, right? Of course. And then you would you would go out and you would try to outdo you know what the last guy did, and I tell you what results right i mean great results bad guys yep. were getting locked up violent offenders were getting locked up crime guns were getting taken off the street kilos of drugs were getting taken off the street uh you know but there's a price to pay right there was a, there was definitely a personal price to pay uh for that and uh but that that was the atmosphere back then right you know when you heard about a uh, case another office did man you, you were happy that was your team and you were proud but you wanted to do better than they did I, I hope that's still present in today's law enforcement. I don't know. I don't yeah. Know. Yeah. I mean, undercover work is, uh, as I said before, or at least I said it during the our little green room uh, chat, is to me very dangerous, very challenging, and it takes a certain type of individual to be able to do it and be successful at it, as you're describing here. And, you know, in in the best of times in law enforcement, it's it's difficult to get great undercover officers, and I wonder what it's like today, where things are a bit challenging. Yeah, I you know there's uh, I mean from the guys, the very few that I know that are still still working, almost everyone I know has left in one way or another. But uh, it's just not like it was, and I don't know if it will ever, ever return to that. We we had an incredible run. We really but, did. But you uh, you also you also described before. I mean, when you were talking about the stats of what you're seizing and 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 the people that are getting arrested off of one case, you, you don't see that. Uh, and George, no. uh, you would agree with me on that too, right? I mean, oh, it's incredible. Uh, pound for pound, it's it's effective. It's efficient. It's got all the, the markings of uh, precision policing. And and, um, and again, one of the things that, that I tried to do was um, not just use the technique because it was a cool technique. So, you know, when, when we tried to do these, there was a there was a method to it. It wasn't just, hey, let's do a storefront because storefronts are cool. We We knew a plan. We had an operational plan that would talk about uh, why we're doing it, how we're doing it. But the, the thing that made it um, worthwhile, I think, was um, you're doing it on your own turf. You're not going to meet the bad guy in a parking lot or at his house or in some clubhouse or in some bar. You're in the place and you control it. You've got the best evidence because it's wired and it's filming and there's a cover team, you know, feet away as opposed to around the block getting delayed by a train and so it, it you controlled as much as you could control uh so it from a safety standpoint for for the agents it was certainly safer and for the bad guys it was certainly safer um and lou what were our numbers um you know for for i was there for for the storefronts that you did uh what do you think the numbers were combined on those? Any any idea? Have you done the math? I, I do. Um, yeah, drugs. We bought as much drugs as we had money in the cash box for, right? Yeah. I mean, that was our our goal was to buy guns. So uh, the first one, um, Thunderbolt surplus, 
245 guns in nine months. Wow. And that, is, that is not in a big city either. Nope. Yep. Yeah. And the, uh, the second one, uh, Operation Pulaski, was 240 guns. Uh, and that was, but the, uh, the, you know, we can, I know all the stats in these, the incredible stat from Operation Pulaski, beside the number of guns is the average sentence was almost 10 years. The average sentence for the defendants was almost 10 years and that's fed time. So they're doing, wow. it. Yep. uh, you know, we, like George was saying, we didn't just throw one of these down somewhere just you know we, first of all we were requested by you know the chief of police right we were requested by whoever the sheriff was uh we were getting a request to do an operation and then we compiled statistics right which our agency luckily you know statistics on guns on gun crimes uh we would actually compile statistics on all the guns that were seized in that city and where they came from you know and in the numbers and the crimes uh, guns seized in other cities that came from that city. So we would get all the stats on all the gun crimes, gun-related crimes, and, and we would put all those together and we would say, listen, okay, there's obviously a gun crime problem here, and this is the investigative tool we're going to use to address it. Wow. So they, it wasn't just haphazard that we would put one, start up a storefront you know, somewhere in some city, man. We, it was all driven by the numbers, and we were addressing specifically addressing violent crime in these cities and man it worked results and and i'll tell you really quick probably one of the greatest things that a fellow law enforcement officer has ever said to me in my career that meant the most um was after the storefront we had done in statesboro georgia um i talked to one of the one of the detectives who was in the cover room the whole time. Who had he had moved up? He was almost, I think, a major, maybe like two years later. And he called me and he said, "I got to tell you," he goes, "Like our 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 narc guys, they have nothing to do." He said, "There's oh. there is no there is no drug wow. dealing, gun dealing going on in this city." He said, "All the dope boys are afraid that everyone's working for the feds." There, he said, "You know, two years later, our crime rate." is is rock bottom and, and now to me that's impact right that's impact yep that's impact so you know hey. that, that just that that was validation for me that these we're doing the right thing so i i know in the book you you cover a murder for hire case and uh just uh, skimming through some of the summary of that there was a i guess it was a doctor that already had uh two uh murders under his belt for his uh former wife could you tell us about that case and uh some of the the background on that and what was that like yeah i i highlighted that one because it was very different and i I just kind of i very briefly go into i think it's only a couple pages uh Mm -hmm. and i'm actually writing my second book about it i'm going to go into detail about it so my second book i'm doing with uh three other agents um, one of them is Jay Dobbins, uh, another yep. one is Chris Bayless and Tino Brancato. And we have all done murder for hires. Uh, and we chose these different ones um, that aren't your typical, you know, ATF, we do a lot of murder for hires, but it's usually some gangster who's 
probably already locked up, who wants maybe a witness killed in his case, or even a, a prosecutor or a judge. Um, you know, and it's very, they're very typical. These gang gang members, organized crime members, uh, gangsters who want someone involved in their case killed. Um, but the ones we picked, and this one I'll tell you about um, with the doctor, these are different ones where the intended victim, you know, wasn't some witness or some law enforcement officer or judge, or uh, it, it was a lover, um, you know, a husband, a wife, an ex-wife, an ex-lover. You know, there's emotions involved. Uh, so, not to try and sound smart, but I would dare say the psychological profile of these defendants, of these, of these. Uh, murder for hire uh, solicitors is very different from the usual um, defendant we work, we're work we working right. on as ATF agents. Uh, so this particular case is it, totally bizarre because there was a guy who was a firearms instructor down at our academy who was living on the premises of this doctor, wealthy guy. And the doctor had approached him on several occasions. Uh, this guy kind of had a, a military background, um, uh, this firearms instructor and, and the doctor had said, man, I, you know, asked him if he knew anyone who, who he could hire to have his wife killed. And this guy kind of had just brushed it off a few times. Like, you know, come on. And then finally he's like, man, this guy is serious. So he did this guy who was vilified during the trial, but he did exactly what he was supposed to do. Now he knew ATF. He knew us as agents, you know, that, that was one of our things, murder fires. He went to the closest office, right? He was at the academy. Savannah was the closest field office. And he just went up there and talked to the supervisor. He asked to see the supervisor and explain the situation. Supervisor at the time called me in and I listened to him and I said, okay, if he approaches you again, I said, don't approach him about it. But if he approaches you again, give him this number. This is my undercover cell phone. Tell him my name is Sal. Tell him you think you got a guy who might be interested, who does this sort of thing. And, and he left. And George can tell you, you know, like these things do come up more often than you think. And nine times out of 10, that's it. You don't ever hear anything. So a week or two later, I was in the grocery store with my wife. And my undercover phone rings. And I, it's a number I don't recognize, a, a 912 area code number. And I, I answer it. And he goes, hey, this is the doc. <laughs> and I'm like, shit. I go, hey, I go, let me get somewhere I can talk. I said, call me back in about 20 minutes. So I hang up and then I tell my wife, I said, I got to get back to the house and set up all my recording equipment, right? This is before days where you, I could just record on my phone. So I had to go back and set up the little NT2 and put the earpiece in. And, and, I'm <laughs> and, and he called back and uh, we set up a meeting and I, I met him at a Waffle House off I-95. Uh, and he, I got him into my car and he laid it out and he laid everything out, gave me her name, told me why he was justifying it to me. Uh, she was ruining him financially. And uh, he, during that meeting, he gave me a lot. He, where she worked, her name, what she looked like, all this. And, and you know, so I set up another meeting um, and I just threw it out there. Uh, I just said, listen, man, it, you know, the way I do these, I make it look like a robbery, a robbery gone bad. And she gets killed. I take all her shit and she gets shot. 
And I told him just, I figured I'd just throw it out there. I said, it'd be a lot cleaner if you can get me a gun, if you can get me the gun to do it, a throwaway. And uh, at our next meeting, he brought a 38, a Taurus 38 uh, caliber revolver and gave it to me. True. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I gave him plenty of outs. Uh, you know, we had, you know, at this point, up to this point, it was still, uh, we had gotten the GBI involved, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, because usually up to this point, even it's still, a, a, you know, you're going to bring state charges on them. Um, but once he gave me the gun, now things were kind of changing. Uh, and after a few phone meetings, you know, in our in-person meetings, uh, we found out that when he called me on his cell phone, when he gave me the final, you know, do it, um, that call, even though he was in Georgia and I was in Georgia, that call bounced off the tower. The closest tower was in Jacksonville. Wow. He made that call and then it came back to my phone in Georgia. And that gave us an interstate nexus, um, wow. which after the trial, they argued and it actually went all the way to the Supreme Court and that made case law. So that case made case law with the Supreme Court. Um, and that established a, a cell phone as a communication device uh, that affects interstate commerce, um, you know, in the commission of a murder for hire. So it, it was a pretty significant case. And uh, actually that the gun and uh, some of the other evidence from the case is one of the five featured cases in ATF headquarters when you walk in uh, to our building up there. Very cool. Very Lou, cool. Lou, close that out uh, to, to, you know, several years later when you're out with uh, the family. So one thing he mentioned to me every time we met, his wife had a daughter, uh, but not his. He had already run through his wife's. <laughs> but anyway, uh, and he obviously she was uh, 13 or 14 at the time, and he was adamant that he did not want the daughter killed. He just wanted the wife killed. And he said that to me on several occasions, and I, I guaranteed him it wouldn't. Well, after our second meeting, ATF decided we got to bring we got to bring her in, the wife, uh, because you never know, right? Did he have another guy, you know, in case I didn't work out, right? And so, concerned for her safety, they had her brought in. Um, and imagine they took her from work, brought her to uh, I think we had a hotel room rented out, you know. And can you imagine getting the word that your spouse has hired someone to kill you? Uh, wow. And then her daughter, she brought her daughter. Her daughter was with her. So I met her and the daughter. Obviously, it was a very emotional meeting and all. Uh, and again, this little girl was 13 or 14. Um, so, but, but to her credit, the wife was able to get herself together enough to place a recorded phone call to him uh, that day, um, which helped, you know, with our murder for hire, the whole case. Um, and so years later, uh, probably about maybe, I don't know, eight or nine years later, uh, I was at a restaurant uh, out on Tybee Island, Georgia, a restaurant that's right out on the water uh, with my wife and kids. And there's this young lady, 21 years old waitress there, um, and she kept staring at me. You know. Uh, I had no idea who she was, right? Just no idea. And finally, she came up to the table. She goes, you don't remember me, do you? And I said, I, I absolutely don't. Uh, 
And I, you know, now I'm not a mind going, right? And uh, she said, you know, you, you saved my mom's life, you know. Wow. And it, that was the daughter. Um, and she was, you know, she was a woman. She was grown at that time. And, uh, you know, she thanked me. She goes, you know, thank you for saving my mother's life. And, and uh, we, we're doing a documentary actually on that um, to go along with the book, the next book. And I just met up. We were able to track her down with the wife, the intended victim, and uh, we filmed. We, I spent a full day with her. Uh, we actually were, went on camera together, talked about it, filmed it. Very emotional. She cried, um, but it was it was pretty cool. Uh, you know, that's just again, we don't interact much with victims or intended victims, so it was kind of a cool thing to do um, and nice closure on that case. Hey, uh, Lou, we're just about an hour here. Um, I think I can talk to you all night. But one thing I want to I want to throw out to you is, is there something that uh, we should have asked you that you want to speak about, whether it's in the book or not? You know, the only thing I would say, and, and it's, I think it's a, probably a good point, you know, to, to uh, kind of wrap up. But, you know, one thing that I... I usually touch on and that I feel is very important, you know, as a retired law enforcement officer is, and this is not just for undercover people, but it's across the board. Um, it's a different job and the stress level is very different. You know, it's, it's, it's very different. You know, even if you have deadlines on your job and you have all this stuff, you know, it's very different than not knowing if you're going to go home every day. You know, and I've talked even I've talked about this with like Navy SEALs, with Eddie Gallagher, with guys, and, wow. and they say they say, listen, like they have the utmost respect for law enforcement. They're like, listen, you guys, we might do six or seven deployments in our career. You guys are deployed every day. So I talk about this a lot in my book, especially at the end. You know, I I ran my personal life into the ground. Um, by the time. Uh, George was, was my supervisor and then he left. I was getting showered with awards. Um, OCDF, uh, case of the year, uh, department of justice, project, safe neighborhood, gun investigation of the year, gang investigation of the year, uh, U S attorney's office, law enforcement officer of the year. But you know what award, uh, what awards I, I was never up for father of the year, husband of the year, friend of the year. Wow. Um, because I had just put thrown everything aside. Uh, my priorities, everything was skewed. Um, I was obsessed. Oh, that's all I cared about. Um, I was operating in the red, man. You know, I was, I was about 8,000 RPMs. And, uh, and, and that is certainly not exclusive just to undercover. It could be any kind of law enforcement. I don't care if, if you're, you know, to me, the, the law enforcement I have the most respect for are the uniform guys who are answering calls men and women right. who are doing that every day so no matter what it is my the message i like to put out is man keep your priorities right you you know faith family friends those are the priorities because you know the job i'm not saying don't work hard work hard and do a great job but keep your priorities go home and remember what's important you know because as both you guys know the job goes on without you, no matter how important you think you are or you were, the 
the job goes on without you. So keep your priority. You know, uh, George, I was going to ask you if you had anything else you wanted to ask, but I think, uh, I think that's a perfect conclusion, huh? Yeah. It's, uh, um, some, some of life's, uh, most important lessons are not learned in pleasant ways. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully other folks, uh, uh, can learn, uh, from the mistakes that we've made, um, you know, so they don't make the same ones. So, yeah, brother, uh, it has been an absolute pleasure, uh, catching up with you and getting to spend time with you. Um, but I've told you this in person and I'll say it now for, for the mass crowds out there. So proud of you for, for writing this book. So proud of you for, for completing it because I know, I know what a labor it was for you. Um, just proud of you. I love you. Uh, wish nothing but uh, uh, good things for you and, and your beautiful family going forward. And just keep the faith, brother. Keep the faith. Hey, thank you, man. I love you, brother. And, uh, you know, I just I'll tell you guys one more thing. The book, my book has been optioned. Um, there's a guy out there. Big time out in Hollywood. His name is Rick Yorn, and uh, he's got a company called LBI, and they're they're huge. And they uh, they see something in this book. They see a Netflix series uh, with the different storefront operations being different seasons uh, and inserting. You know, we kind of rotated our undercover crew, so you'd have different actors for different undercovers, different seasons, different bad guys, different good guys, supervisors, the whole deal. So. Uh, you know, if I'm really hoping that happens, uh, the success of the book, if, if you, whoever's out there, man, you go on Amazon storefront sting and ATF agents life undercover, uh, it's a quick, easy read. And I think it's a page turner. Um, I've got nothing but good feedback. So, uh, support a brother, man. I appreciate it. And I appreciate you two guys. Thank you. Hey, Lou, uh, Lou, thank you. You're, you're a patriot. Really appreciate the work you have done and what you're doing now. Any other place that folks can follow you besides uh, going to the Amazon and, and, and checking out your book? Is there a website that's attached to that? There's a website that it's just about to go up. Uh, it's just, it's my name. It's louvaloze.com, L-O-U-V-A-L-O-Z-E.com. And uh, you can get the book off there. And we, we actually got some, George's name, some undercover t-shirts. It says undercover life with the symbol awesome. that we used uh, for the, so it's really cool. Just check out that website. and. Uh, Man, I appreciate it. Thank you guys for having me. And and you know, you're on Instagram, right? I am. I'm on Instagram and Facebook under my name. Yep. Yep. All right, Lou, I can't thank you enough for coming on. And uh, we look forward to speaking to you again on your next book. Hey, listen, it, hopefully soon. And I'd love to come back on, man. Thank God yeah. bless you guys. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Absolutely.